First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 read, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Hello and welcome back to Think This Way. This is the podcast of Faith Bible Church. As always, I am your host, Pastor Bryce, and I have with me today Bob Walther again. Thank you, Bob, so much for being on here. Thank you for inviting me, Bryce. Just as we were praying before we got into this, I was, I'm always cautious in my prayers not to flatter, because flattery is sin, but that was genuine thanking God for all the influence that you've had, Bob, in my life. Even just in the fact that you've lived so much more of the Christian life than I have. And so I'm grateful for you being willing to share some of that wisdom with us today. So thank you for that. Today we are continuing our quarterly focus on personal holiness. And we have now had three episodes on basically the what of personal holiness. So we've talked about what personal holiness is. We've talked about what it's not, how it relates to positional holiness. Now we're moving on to the next section of this quarter, if you will, which is really the why of personal holiness. So now that we know what it means to be holy, why should we do it? It's a lot of work if you've ever tried to be holy. It's a lot of work. It can be exhausting. So we need some motivation. We will get to the how of personal holiness here in a few more episodes, but I wanted to set three episodes aside just to focus on the Bible's teaching on why we should be holy. And today, specifically, the answer to that question is, we should be holy because God is holy. I'm going to give some brief overview of the Bible's teaching on this and then turn to you, Bob, with several questions. This idea of being holy because God is holy starts in the Old Testament of the Bible. So there are five times in everybody's favorite book, Leviticus. <laughs> I hope people read Leviticus in their Bible reading plan. It's important. And here's one of the reasons, because there are five times in Leviticus where God tells Israel, be holy for or because I am holy. So for example, Leviticus eleven forty four, God tells that to Israel. Interestingly, it's in the context of the diet restrictions. And so he tells them the reason you're not going to eat certain foods is because I'm holy, and so you have to be holy. And then in Leviticus 21.8, it's in the context of priests who are not allowed to, for example, touch the dead, shave their beards, marry a prostitute or a divorced woman. Again, it's a ritual or ceremonial holiness or cleanness. And he says, again, his motivation is the reason the priests have to do that, they have to be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. Now, what's interesting is Bob and I and you listening, we are not under those same ceremonial laws. So we don't have priests, for example. We don't have the dietary restrictions. And yet there is a principle that carries over from those five instances in Leviticus to us today. So for example, you can see this principle somewhat more clearly in Leviticus 20.26. 20, Quote, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. We don't have dietary restrictions like they did. We don't have priests like they did. 
But what we share in common with God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, is that we are called to be set apart or separate, which is an essential component of what it means to be holy. We're called to be different. They were called in the Old Testament as Israel, as a nation, to be different than the other nations. And why did they have to be different from the Hittites and all the ites of the Old Testament? It was because their God was holy. He was not like their so-called gods. He was different. So they had to be different. Now, the reason I know that principle applies to us as a motivation for our holiness today is because that's quoted in the New Testament. This very concept is at least two times its reference. One I already read at the beginning of this podcast from 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. We're saying, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's Leviticus. But he's applying it to believers and he's applying it not to ceremonial law, but to their moral conduct. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, which is what all the other nations and peoples do. Be different, because God is different. And then the one other time where it appears, but a little bit different, is in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 5, where Jesus is giving probably the hardest of all his commands, telling us to love our enemies. And the reason, he says, we have to love even our enemies is because God does. And so he ends that section with, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect with the sense of complete. But it's very similar to this, be holy because I am holy. So we see that from Jesus. We see that from Peter. It's a New Testament teaching. So even though we do not come under the ceremonial holiness of the Old Testament, that principle, that concept that we are to be different than the rest of the people on earth, in this case, morally, in our moral conduct, that holds to us today in the new covenant. It's the same principle. So that's the summary of this message. Why should you be holy if you're a Christian? Why should you be different? Why should you not participate in the sins of the whole world around you that they celebrate? Why are you different? Because God is holy, because he is set apart and different. So that's all I have on my end. In terms of questions, one of the first that came to mind was, I've been thinking lately about R.C. Sproul, who passed away not long ago. And I know that the holiness of God, if you were to summarize R.C. Sproul's whole message and ministry, it really comes down to the holiness of God. More than anyone I can think of, that's what he made the center of his ministry. And one of the things Sproul often said was that our concept of God's holiness is so low today, even in the church. It's so low. And he tied that, I believe, to many of the consequences we see, sins and difficulties we find even in the church. Bob, help us maybe to see some of that connection. How is our view, our typically low view of God's holiness, be holy because I am holy, how is that tied to the fact that we don't see as much holiness in the church as we ought to? Well, Bryce, it's interesting that you framed the question around R.C. Sproul's book. That book was transforming to me, The Holiness of God. I've read a number of his books and a number of other top Christian authors, but The Holiness of God really changed my whole thinking about God, about salvation, uh, just the sovereignty of God and all that, and and certainly his holiness and his right to be worshipped the way he wants to be worshipped. And this whole issue of 
a, a high view of the holiness of God and a low view of the holiness of God, the low view has caused a myriad of problems within the church and consequently within the culture. Uh, within the church, the low view of God's holiness uh, has likewise created a low view of the authority of Scripture. And there's a daisy chain there. Even to the extent, this low view of Scripture, that no one really has a right to say what it really means. So we now have no objective truthful foundation to stand on, where God demands personal holiness on our part due to our low view of God's holiness and our low view of the authority of Scripture on our lives, we have lowered the standards for personal righteousness, thereby deluding ourselves into thinking that we have reached a higher level of sanctification than we have actually. Likewise, the, the evangelical church, in an attempt to be relevant to the culture, not only fails to reject the sinful standards of the outside world, but actually invites them in, in giving approval, in order to be connected to the culture. So all of this is a after effect of this low view of God and low view of holiness. So to answer your question, a low view of the holiness of God creates a low view of the authority of Scripture. And a low view of the authority of Scripture creates an unstable platform for orthodoxy, for orthopraxy, either both, but for our conduct. And that's what we're talking about here, which only opens the door to all sorts of sinful behavior within the church. And it's behavior that's contrary to the will of God for us. It's, it's really a bit of an assault, a further assault on God himself, which is really heartbreaking yeah. when you understand his holiness. You know, and another stunning and sad consequence of this is that the church in the process of this lack of respect for holiness has lost its saltiness in, in regard to the culture, to its effect on the culture and is now being trampled, just as the Bible says. It's being trampled under underfoot by heretofore just unimaginable sinfulness that has manifested itself in our culture. Uh, an assault on God and an assault on truth. You know, some friends of ours paid for us just a few days ago to go and see a movie in theaters right now called The Sound of Freedom which is about sex yes. trafficking, yeah. And uh, I'd encourage anyone to see it. It's a heavy movie, very heavy movie. Uh, Tim Ballard, based on his life, he's Mormon, so it doesn't have the same God or gospel we do, but it's a good movie. But that's one of the things I've been thinking about lately is exactly what you're saying even, is it's hard to even get into the mind of someone who is, let's say, a sex trafficker, who's kidnapping children, abusing children, making money off of that. And sometimes I think, how, how could you be in that situation and live your life day after day, participating in that level of evil? Surely, you cannot do that with any sense that there is a God who is holy. That's right. So I don't know if you just block God out of your mind or, or you just lower you know, God's standard you have to justify that somehow. So that's an extreme example that's been on my mind. 
but certainly that's true for all of us and within the church. You don't have to be a sex trafficker. If you're living in a sin, you have to somehow justify that by lowering God. Because it's hard as a believer, you're living quorum Deo, as Sproul would like to say. You're living before the the face face of God. And if you have a sense that God is holy, it's going to be hard to live in that tension. So you have to lower that standard, which is often what happens. One thing that someone, when they hear, okay, I need to be holy because God is holy, great. One thing that might actually prove a discouragement to someone, especially in light of that Matthew 5, the translation of Matthew 5, you therefore must be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. Of course, Jesus said we have to do that, but there can almost be a discouragement there because we'll never be perfect. And if we have to be holy in the way that God is holy in this life, we'll never be holy like that. So how is it that we can still be motivated to be holy like God is holy, knowing we're never going to be as holy as him in this life? Well, the fact that we cannot be perfect in this life uh, should never be a deterrent to us. When I look at my own life and recognize the incredible thing that God did as an adult to save me, It makes me want to do this. This is my desire. And I think that is the real issue to be nurtured in this by all of us, where it's not something that's, I'm, well, I am obligated to do it, but it's my desire to do that in my life, which pleases the Lord, not which displeases him. That's well said. We could call all this, and rightly, a command from God. It is. It's written in the imperative, at least in the grit part of a previous podcast, our, our quest for personal holiness. God effectively commands us to do that. However, for those that truly love God, it's actually considered an honor and, and a heartfelt desire to, to be like our Father who's perfectly holy knowing that we will only do that you know, after death when we are glorified, the final stage of our sanctification. I remember years ago hearing uh, Johnny Erickson Tata speak, and it was so humbling what she said. I mean, you know, she has been paralyzed since she was a teenager from the neck down, I think, in a diving accident. And she said, I just can't wait to get to heaven. And I'm thinking in my own mind, yeah, then you'll be given, you know, a glorified body and you'll be able to walk. She said, I cannot wait until I get to heaven so I can present myself to my Lord sinless. I thought this woman has reached a level of thankfulness and sanctification that I'm not close to. My thoughts would have been much more self-centered and selfish than God-centered than hers at that point. It's almost if you going back to Sproul maybe, but this holiness of God or this high view of God, if you do see God as the most beautiful and grand and majestic being, and he's holy, then far from being a discouragement, the idea that we can become more like him morally, I mean, if you're attracted to that and go, that's that's amazing, then you would, it's an honor to be able to have that in yourself. Yes. You know, the... To me, always that primary motivation is to do it to glorify God. But there are very uh, specific benefits 
this brings to us in in this high view of God and the the progressive sanctification, the pursuit of personal righteousness in our lives. It drives an increase of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things start more regularly and deeply manifesting themselves within us as we feed feed our souls that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you see those attributes in God, that God is loving, and we love that, then it's not a burden for us to be loving. It's a real privilege that we get to be what we admire in God in that regard, you know? That's correct. And it it gives the Christian a real sense of purpose mm-hmm. and traction in life and living a life that's worthy of building up treasures in heaven by this pursuit of personal holiness. It's a wonderful thing. Let's say someone is listening to this and they're struggling with temptation to sexual sin of some kind. And this could be being lured toward a coworker if you're married. This could be pornography. This could be anything. And we'll get into some of the more practical of these temptations later on. But right now, just to make what we're talking about here practical, imagine someone listening is in that situation. They're trying to fight sexual temptation. How is what we're talking about right here going to help them succeed in fighting sexual temptation? Well, that is a very good question, a very practical question, because it's one that so many people struggle with. And... Once again, going back to where we started, the high view of God drives all sorts of high views of our quest for personal holiness. A low view of God makes a lot of things permissible. That that we just, as we grow as Christians, we grow to where we just don't want those things anymore, Bryce. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is huge in this. I mean, sex traffickers. But people, there are people who aren't saved through common grace who manifest some wonderful positive things in their lives. But typically, people in our culture today, people are almost proud of their sin. They... And when I was uh, a young man, it was almost unheard of for people to live together. Now it's almost unheard of for people not to live together. And the difference is for the Christian, we hate those things in our lives. Through the, and it's through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to give too much credit to man in this. You know, the Holy Spirit... And we Christians, we work together as a synergy there in working out our sanctification and our, our, our progressive holiness. But we do not like the fact that this sin still dwells within us. We want to mortify it, to, to put it to death. And we can talk about that in a, a later podcast. But I, I really think that for those who truly love the Lord, those desires are fading away. 
It, it kind of reminds me, reading some of Plato, so he was ancient Greece philosopher, and most everything he said is way, way above me, so <laughs> quoting Plato doesn't mean I know what he's talking about, but one of the things that really stood out to me about Plato was, so there he is living not far removed from the time of the New Testament, just before it, and he was really trying to encourage morality, especially in the young people in his day. And what he said was, and he lived in the day where there were the Greek gods, the whole pantheon of all the Greek gods. And what Plato said was, if we take these Greek gods seriously, as if they're all real, I cannot enforce much morality on the young people of Greece. Can't do it. The Greeks, you know, because they're looking at these gods like Zeus, who sleeps with everybody just because he wants to. And nobody stop. He's God, you know, he's their God. There's no, so, so in that context, Plato actually said, so we, we really have to imagine that although we have these mythologies, that in reality, there is one perfect, morally perfect God. That's what he said. That's like, I don't know, when's Plato? 300 BC? That's before Jesus' time. But he was just groping in the dark, but realizing if our gods are this bad, <laughs> how can I tell young men not to live with other people, not to sleep around, not like how can you tell them to be more self-controlled than your gods? No. And that's why it's wonderful to have the true God who we know is not like that. Yeah. So helpful. Well, a thousand years or so later, Immanuel Kant kind of came to the same conclusion. I don't think there was any evidence that Immanuel Kant was a Christian, but he said a belief in a holy God is a practical necessity for a society to even survive because if you don't, men shred each other apart, their own opinions being law. We know that from the book of Judges, don't we? Yep. Yeah. I mean, even right now, I'm working my way through a biography of Abraham Lincoln, who was a deist, so he believed in God kind of but not really the God of the Bible. But if you notice all his speeches, including the Gettysburg Address, but any of his great speeches, he references really the God of the Bible very often. Yes. It was a bit of a political move, because it's hard to tell if he really even believed in that God. But he realized to govern a nation, especially through a state of war, how necessary it was for people, even if he didn't, the people at large needed to believe in a moral God of the Bible. So someone listening to this may be struggling with any number of temptations and sins. The good news is you don't have the Greek pantheon <laughs> to look up to or anything like that. You have this one true God. So in the past, it may be that your thoughts of God and his holiness may have been too low, and you may see some of the bad fruit of that in your own life. Maybe you just block God out of your mind while you're sinning. Whatever it might have been in the past, may God help us all now to think this way. 